Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst, who will be to discuss the biggest strike day in a decade this week and the even larger day of walkouts to come on Monday, as well as marking Rishi Sunak's somewhat rocky first 100 days as Prime Minister. I'm delighted to say we have One Kassab, National Lead Officer for the Unite Union, whose members in a whole range of sectors have agreed a series of industrial action over paying conditions. Alongside him, we have Theresa Villiers, Conservative MP and a former Cabinet Minister, as well as Adam Drummond, Head of Political and Social Research at the polling firm Opinion. So I'm going to start with you, uh, Therese. Obviously, today, as we record this on Thursday, it's 100 days of uh, Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister. It's known as a, a double trust, I think, 100 days. Um, I just wondered what you kind of made of those 100 days. There's a lot of questions at the moment, whether it's, they've been a bit overshadowed by scandal and strikes. I just wondered how you felt things were going. The last time you were on the podcast was at the last Conservative Party conference in Birmingham. I just wonder what you've made of the time since then. Yes, well, that that podcast um, that I did for you was more or less the only thing I said on the media um, across <laughs> premiership. I was I feel very, very honoured, very honoured, Theresa. Thank you. Keeping fairly quiet about uh, that um, episode. Well, I mean, the crucially important thing that Rishi's done is to stabilise the the economic situation. Um, so we've seen the you know the the interest in the, uh, the rise in interest rates uh, arrested and. We are also, um, we've also had the autumn statement, which put the public finances back on a, a stable footing for the future. So that is absolutely crucial. Um, Rishi has also confirmed and extended the energy support package, both for households and businesses, which is another vital achievement in the first 100 days. And continuing with the aid to Ukraine and stepping it up and being the first country to offer tanks, I think, is another important factor in his initial premiership. And the plan to tackle NHS delays and pressure is, for me, particularly crucial. I know many of my constituents are really worried about this. And the plan for more ambulances, more beds, more staff is very welcome. Um, But... As I said to the Health Secretary in Parliament, the crucial thing is it, it's got to it, it, it's got to be felt on the ground at the front line as soon as possible. And I know the government's determined to do that. So, so those are some of the key things they've been focused on in the first hundred days. But. Uh, there is obviously more to do. Yeah, I mean, those are sort of the good things. And I think, especially before Christmas, I spoke to lots of Conservative MPs who felt that things had sort of calmed down after a pretty wild sort of six months. But in the in the in since then, in January, there's there's still a feeling, I suppose, that there's that the kind of there's a bit of a fracture in the Conservative Party. There's lots of new groups popping up, the sort of Conservative Growth Group and etc. And there's people trying to push the Chancellor to perhaps be a bit more bold in the upcoming budget. Last night on Wednesday night was the the anniversary of the 1922 Committee's uh, 100 year at the Hurlingham Club. I understand you were there. What was kind of the mood like there amongst your colleagues? Is it all kind of, you're a nest of singing birds, is the phrase I often use? Or is there still kind of a bit of kind of hangover from what was a pretty mad 2022 for the Tory party? There is certainly the, the you know, the, it's been a welcome relief that under Rishi's premiership, we we have you know, restored political stability. And, and that includes stability within the Conservative Party. Of, of course, we all care a great deal about the issues that brought us into Parliament, so we're not going to agree on everything, but uh, there is far more that unites us than divides Even us. Even still, do you think? Yes, absolutely. Well, I, I have to confess I did lead a bit of a rebellion myself just before Christmas on planning and housing targets because I was concerned yep. 
about the impact that setting very aggressively high targets is having on the ability of local councils to have control over what is built in their neighbourhood. But actually, I think that was resolved in a sensible way. The amendment I tabled attracted 60 names, but in the end, I was I felt able to withdraw it because Secretary mm. of State Michael Gove listened and came up with some sensible measures which actually do boost the input of local communities in the planning system. So we have you know, strong, strong debates if people express their opinions and not least on things like the Northern Ireland Protocol. But I think Rishi has shown himself adept at being willing to listen to backbenchers and, and actually to look ahead to make sure that uh, we resolve our internal debates so that we can we can work together backbenches and frontbenches. I think it sounds a bit like a, a, a pitch for party chairman. There's a vacancy there, Theresa. Is that, are you putting your name forward for uh, party chairman? I'm, I'm not pitching for that job. I'm, <laughs> it's not the easiest in the world, given the uh, the current political circumstances. No, obviously not. And, and, and on that, Adam, obviously, just talk about the kind of the polling. Obviously, when Rishi Sunak came in, there was an expectation that he would perhaps try and lift the Conservative Party. At the time he came in, his personal ratings were above that of the Conservative Party. It looks like they're sort of slipping a little bit. Just... Talk to us a little bit about the kind of where the polling is, both in terms of Rishi Sunak personally and where the Conservatives are two years out from an election. Yeah, so a bit um, like Theresa said, actually, the, the most important thing that Rishi Sunak did was sort of stabilise the situation after we had uh, that sort of September free fall crazy month that I'm sure we all remember in different ways. Um, so the difficulty he's got, though, is that just stabilising the situation isn't doesn't take you to an election winning situation. So the fall in the Conservative Party's overall sort of vote share um, under trust when it went from being sort of in the low 30s to the low 20s, sometimes even in the teens, um, he's brought that up to sort of, you know, the mid 20s. But obviously mid 20s is still an election wipeout position. Um, the other thing is that, yes, Rishi Sunak was more popular than the Conservative Party more generally. The problem for him is that the party he leads is deeply unpopular. And there's only a certain amount that one leader can sort of fix the brand damage there. The Tory party's brand image was really, really trashed over the course of September and a lot of the summer last year. And what's happening is that Sunak's ratings are coming more into line with where the party is rather than the other way around. Mm. We'll come back to some of those issues, why the Conservative polling is, is down. But uh, Ono, bringing you in, obviously, your members staged this huge part of this huge walkout yesterday on Wednesday and, and obviously can be part of this big walkout from the NHS and, and other industries, other sectors on, on Monday, the 6th of February. Just talk to us why your members have taken this decision and why you think it's kind of such an important moment, I think, for industrial relations at the moment with the government. Well, the one thing that our members are not seeing is, is stability. The reality is that our members... Uh, are going through a cost of living crisis where their wages are not meeting the cost of living, if you like, the, the ability just to be able to live. We're not talking about luxuries, just to be able uh, to live. And that's happening at the same time, I have to say, that's happening at the same time as a number of companies that we're in dispute with are, are making bumper profits. And, mm. and our members can see that. So as well as our members struggling they are seeing the companies that they work for making profits. Our bus driver members in southwest London working for uh, Abellio are currently taking action. You get Abellio are posting huge, significant profits. Um, and that's, uh, that's not isolated. And I think workers see that. Workers can see what's happening. And looking at the public sector, when you get a situation where hospitals are now providing food banks for their own staff... Uh, I think that shows you how desperate 
the situation uh, has got. So our members are, uh, are taking action because they have unions that are, are confident and willing to do what is necessary. But don't forget, they have to vote and be balloted for industrial action. That means passing legal thresholds that are in existence at the moment already. And the fact that we can get people over those legal thresholds, and I have to say, uh, ballot thresholds that no MP or local authority councillor would have to get through, the fact that there is that level of support amongst our membership, the level of support amongst the public for those strikes as well, I think is very, very telling. I think everybody can see what's going on, uh, what's happening. Uh, and I think the message from us as a trade union, in particular focusing on the NHS, is that we want talks. We yeah. want discussion. And that's not happening. Yeah, you, you've been involved previously in some talks with Stephen Barclay, the health secretary for your NHS members. You came out and said that those talks are pretty pointless. You felt, uh, you know, that there hadn't been the discussion on pay that, that you wanted. What have you made, I guess, of the of the government's response to this kind of wave of industrial action? And, and how do you see a way through? What do you want to see from ministers? Um, you know, if, if this more strike action is to be averted, you've obviously announced uh, many more days of industrial actions already. You know, what needs to happen really from the government's point of view? Well, discussion on the issues that we are actually in dispute over would be a good start. I was in two out of three of the meetings that have taken place with Stephen uh, Barclay, and I've also had a good briefing from the third meeting. None of those meetings took place for more than 45 uh, minutes. And the key issue that we are in dispute over was not discussed uh, because the minister did not want to discuss it, made it absolutely uh, clear. So we want discussions on pay with regard to 2022. That's what we are in dispute over. And what is, I think, particularly galling for our members is when we see statement after statement from the Prime Minister saying that there are constructive talks taking place, there are discussions taking place. Well, as far as the NHS is concerned, and our union is concerned, that's not happening. That's not taking place. I think the other thing that was galling, I think there was a lot of briefing done to the press about possible settlements that, that may be put. Well, I have to make clear again today, no offer has mm. come forward. So there was discussion about a lump sum, there was discussion about bringing forward the 2023 uh, pay uh, anniversary date. None of that has been put forward to the unions. So what we want to see, we want to see negotiation on the issues we are in dispute over. And outside of the NHS, in the private sector, we want to see those companies that are making huge profits share some of those profits with the workers who are helping them to make that money. Mm. Theresa, bring you back in on this. How, how have you kind of seen it from your point of view, how ministers have handled it and what do you want to see? Obviously, no one wants to see teachers walking out, NHS stuff walking out. What do you think needs to happen for this kind of stuff to be resolved? Obviously, it's been talked about Sunak's 100 days. It's kind of been going on for as long as that, really, and it looks like there's no sign of, of it ending anytime soon. I, look, I, I completely understand the concern that so many people feel across the country about the rising cost of living and, and the erosion on the value of their wages. It's, you know, the, the war in Ukraine has, has created huge damage in terms of the inflationary surge that it's caused. That's, that's why we've got the, the big programme to try and help people at this difficult time with their energy bills. But I just do feel that that widespread strike action is not the right approach. You, of course, all of us want you know, wages to be higher across the board, whether it's the public sector or the private sector. But um, rushing into 
big inflation busting pay rises now could embed inflation you know for the medium and longer term and that makes everybody poorer i mean the the the, the best thing we can do to assist people with the cost of living is to get a grip on inflation to halve inflation as the prime minister has promised to do and that is just not reconcilable with with some of the the pay demands that have been made so i do hope we can find a resolution on on all of this there there are there are some promising signs that you know, we may start to see inflation stabilise and I hope come down. But uh, I, I, I just think the, the unions and their members really should think again about the disruption that they're, that they're inflicting on, 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 on the rest of the general public and uh, the problems that they are causing because, you know, it, it's, it's just not possible to write a, a big enough cheque to answer all the demands for pay rise as much as I wish it were. Yeah, but it, it feels as though, you know, there's there's a difference between 4%, which was the offer for NHS stuff last year, and something that you say is inflation busting. Inflation is still over 10%. There could be a landing zone there, which be still would be less than inflationary. And that would still be seen as a pay cut for people. You know, it feels like there is a there should be a, a way forward that doesn't cause either of those kind of issues. But the government has has delivered on the pay review body process and uh, that that has meant um, wage rises for NHS staff, and in, indeed for for teachers, they've relatively recently had some of the highest wage rises for 30 years. And I think we do have to keep in mind that pension arrangements in the public sector are considerably more generous than is than is possible or practical for someone working in the private sector. Um, I mean. A, of course, I understand the concerns felt by public sector workers, but we could end up undermining the value of their future wages if if we let inflation take hold. So we've, we've just got to bear in mind what is affordable for the public for the public finances and and borrowing more to fund additional pay increases for this this year just leaves more debt for future generations. But I mean, I think it's also positive to look ahead to the pay review process for next year and see if there is more that can be done to respond to the concerns. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll just bring it only back in. It looks like that's that's been the government's kind of, you know, is to try and sort of push this long, play the long game so that, you know, eventually there's no point reopening 2022, 2023 and to talk about 2024 and hope that inflation comes down to a level where you know they don't have to give the the rise they're looking for. But what have you kind of made of that as a strategy? Sure. As, as a strategy, it's clearly not working because the strikes are continuing. But I do want to pick up this point about inflation busting pay rises because that seems to have become the mantra over the last couple of days. I've seen interview after interview where that phrase is used, inflation busting pay rises. It's not workers' wages that caused the problem as far as inflation is concerned. It's now being accepted by wider circles than, than just the unions. It's about price gouging. Companies are making excess profits by putting prices up artificially to a much higher extent than they need to in order to make uh, profits. The Daily Mail, not a friend of the trade unions, even ran an article about it over uh, uh, just a, a few uh, days uh, ago. So it's not workers' wages that are putting... Uh, inflation uh, up. Look, as far and, and that point that you 
made about the difference between 4% and inflation. We have said over and over again, we will negotiate. Mm. United has been involved over the last year in over 500 disputes, winning 80% of those, putting an extra 200 million into the pockets of our members. And we've done that in the main by sitting down and negotiating. There may have been a dispute that forced the employees to the table, but we've done that through negotiations. And that's what is not happening in a number of these disputes, especially the NHS. If the uh, government's position is that the RPI rate of inflation is too high uh, an amount, we clearly know that the uh, pay review body is uh, discredited. We've had those arguments uh, for someone. And I think yesterday, the Department of Health was even missed the deadline to put its own submission into this year's uh, yeah. pay uh, review body. So we don't have faith in the process. What we want is to sit down and negotiate. And look, I will say this again today, we are more than willing to compromise. Mm. Adam, just bringing you in on part of that government strategy to sort of to play it long, as I guess is if eventually hope that, you know, that people start to blame, I suppose, the unions for causing this, this disruption and perhaps public support for some of these strikes starts to, to wane. How is the kind of public support for strikes? And has that changed over the past few weeks or not? So there's, there's two things. One of them is that it's remarkable how little it's changed over the past um, couple of weeks, and even actually since last June when we were asking about rail strikes then. Um, so the country's relatively sort of divided on it. Um, there is, depending on sector, more support than opposition for most of the sectors that we test. But that's the other point, which is that it really is divided by sector. So nurses, ambulance drivers, huge public support there for for basically uh, the strikes and, and my only sort of advice to the government there is just give give them what they want you got you got to end this that is not a good political opponent to pick yeah. um, if you're the government and then you have a more nuanced picture on uh, i think it's teachers and railway workers where i think there was more public perception that whatever sort of pay setup and and with teachers you always get holidays mentioned but whatever kind of setup and deal they have is more broadly fair than than what is being given to nurses and ambulance drivers mm. and so that kind of i suppose that that difference between i suppose the polling you talked about for politicians generally but also for the conservatives and the gap in terms of polling and support of the, the strikes we've seen that kind of gap and you think that's that's a difficulty for for the government to face is that there is that gap between support for them and the other side on this yeah and when when we ask about who you blame for the strikes generally it's the government that comes out worse off in this like i said it does differ by sector especially for um ones related to the nhs it's overwhelmingly people blame the government for the strikes with with rail workers it's a bit more nuanced but again like the, the best picture for the government in that case is that People are blaming um, the the unions in that in that sense as much as they're blaming the government. Like the best case for the government in that case is a draw right. rather than an overwhelming loss. Right. Okay. And and so Theresa, on that, then if if there's there's that difficulty, the public are backing, especially NHS workers. Do you not think that, as only says, that there does need to be a negotiation, and it feels though like that reticence to reopen the 22-23 pay dispute isn't going to change. How does the government kind of do this? Is it just waiting until the next pay review settlement for the following year and hope that you know they kind of keep that going until then it is it is a difficult situation i mean we 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 all as i emphasize you know we we all want to support nhs workers we all want to see them paid more but i think the government does have to 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 stand firm on this mm. uh, there there is scope for, for discussions about, you know, other, other working conditions and how we tackle that. And obviously, the government is also trying to push more resources into the NHS to expand capacity. But I think when it comes to pay, 
it is the right approach to focus on the negotiations and the pay review process for the financial year starting at the end of March. I think mm. if we if we see the government cave in on these disputes, I do have a concern about the long term impact on on this crucial goal of halving inflation. We, we've got to drive inflation out of our system. It, it makes everyone poorer. It erodes everyone's wages. And, you know, the lessons of the, the 1970s demonstrate that if you if if you hike up wages during an inflationary spiral, you end up making the problem worse and last for longer. So I, I, I wish there were easier answers. I wish I could say something different. But I think for the moment, the focus has got to be on trying to reach some sort of fair resolution via the pay review process for for the next financial year. Uh, well, look, look, I've I've got we've got a proposal within uh, Unite about how and where we find uh, the money. There was a Treasury leak that said that the energy companies, I think the top four energy companies, are going to make excess profits of about 170 billion over the next uh, two years. A one-off windfall tax of 50 billion uh, pounds would more than uh, take care of the situation in the NHS, uh, and would also help uh, the rest of the. Uh, economy uh, as well. And I think the other point to perhaps make is that actually it makes economic sense to pay public service workers properly. Uh, if you pay NHS workers a decent wage, they will spend the money mm. in the local economy. That generates uh, revenues that the Treasury could actually end up recouping an awful lot of the money is the reality, not just from uh, the taxes that would be uh, paid, but because people will go out and spend that money in the local uh, economy. These are not people who are going to spirit the money away in offshore bank accounts somewhere. They're going to spend the money in the local economy. So surely it makes economic sense. But it's also uh, we're being told that the health of the nation is in peril, not just because of the strikes, but because people are falling ill and not being able to go to work. So it makes sense to have uh, a decent NHS. But look, lastly, there's a moral argument here. We've seen statistic after statistic that talks about how people are needlessly, unnecessarily dying uh, because of the crisis within the NHS. So we talk about the financial impact, but there's an impact on people's lives as well. Mm. Just on, on that windfall tax, is that something that you've looked at in terms of the polling? Is it, um, What's the kind of polling on, on that people in favour of a windfall tax, especially on energy companies? This morning we saw Shell, I think, record the largest ever profit in its entire history. Yeah, a windfall tax on energy companies is one of the most popular things you can ask about. Um, it's right up there with, you know, paying nurses the same as footballers. It's an incredibly <laughs> popular, easy thing where you can just predict the answer. And I can tell you that if we put the question out tomorrow, the, the answer is going to come back with something like 70% of Proving. Yeah, it's also it's against energy companies. People don't like energy companies. Their energy is very much kind of a grudge purchase. People want it to be free and infinite. So, yeah, it's it's a in terms of public perceptions, it's an it's an easy thing to argue for. Mm. Uh, Teresa, I can I can hear the division bell ringing there. So you, I know you're going to have to head off in a, in a second. Um, you know, one of the issues that, that Rishi Sunak is facing this 100 days is is you know he's had a couple of cabinet ministers have to leave under different circumstances. Dominic Ra, the deputy prime minister, justice secretary, is facing huge amounts of pressure at the moment over. Uh, accusations of, of bullying. There was discussion last night whether he was going to step aside while this investigation by the KC Adam Tolley goes ahead. He sort of pushed back against that. What have you kind of made of it? And do you think that Sunak perhaps needs to be a bit bolder and, and take these decisions earlier rather than waiting? Or do you think we need to kind of let this due process go? And, and, and what do you kind of make of the whole Rob situation? The Prime Minister 
set up an investigation into Nadine Zahawi's tax affairs. It reported very quickly. And as soon as the conclusions were published that the ministerial code had been broken, then, then Dean was, uh, was asked to leave the government. So I think he did act swiftly. You have to make sure you have the facts of these situations uh, before you take action. That's, that's the, the fair and legal way to approach them. Um, as with, with Dominic Raab, there is, there is a detailed investigation underway, and I don't think we should prejudge that. Dominic is, um, is a dedicated and talented minister, and it's only appropriate that if complaints have been made about him, that they are appropriately investigated before a conclusion is reached on that. I know that the Prime Minister takes very seriously maintaining appropriate standards in his government. And yeah, he mentioned it as he mentioned it on, on the steps of he mentioned it on the steps Downing Street when he when he arrived. But obviously, you know, he's had quite a few issues already. Uh, you know, do, do, do you worry perhaps that this is kind of the perception people might have of, of Sunak's administration as we as we, we go towards an, an election that the, this is an issue that he can't rid himself of? He's he's shown that he he takes very seriously these matters related to the ministerial code. He, he has his ethics advisor appointed. He's acted swiftly yeah. in relation to Mr. Zahawi. And uh, there is a rigorous process underway to investigate the complaints made about the deputy prime minister. I think that I think that is sufficient. Governments of, of all descriptions face these kinds of problems from time to time. And, and the prime minister is determined to take these very seriously. But yeah, obviously, as, as Theresa points out there, there is this investigation going on, doesn't want to prejudge it. But, you know, what's the kind of the public's perception, I suppose, of this? You know, with Zahawi, there was a feeling, I suppose, that even if he'd been found to be absolved by the ethics investigator, the questions wouldn't have gone away. And even now he's been sacked, the questions haven't gone away for Sunak. You know, I just wonder what the public perception was uh, in polling of both Raab and also the way that Rishi Sunak has, has dealt with these situations. Yeah, so the, again, the, the problem for Rishi Sunak is basically that his... All of, all of his weaknesses are a result of the fact that he's in a really, really weak position. Mm. Right? So there's a reason why the Labour Party's latched on to basically trying to portray him as weak, because that's the best way of trying to bring his ratings down, because they know that him being more popular than the Conservative Party generally is their biggest liability. So the thing which he soon like has is that every single one of these events that happens, so being delayed on sacking the Nadeem Zahawi can be portrayed as being weak. Um, any kind of delay on um, whatever the results are of the inquiry into Dominic Raab can be portrayed as being weak. The situation with the strikes and, and the disputes with the unions, again, you can portray it as weak. And it all adds to this kind of general sense where things just aren't really working, everything's kind of breaking down, you can't you can't sort of guarantee being able to get somewhere if you want to go by train or yeah. even if you call an ambulance. And all of these things kind of feed off each other and build up this perception. Mm. Uh, one of the things that he's tried to say as, 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 you know, as, as a strong thing to have done was to introduce these minimum service level legislation. Only what's been Unite's take on this, the, the minimum service level, or minimum safety levels, as sometimes they're called? Uh, you know, what have you kind of made of, of the legislation and how do you think it's going to affect kind of industrial relations over this next few weeks? Um, to not put too fine a point, it's, it's a deflection. Mm. And it's a bit of a pathetic deflection. It's not going to resolve the cost of living crisis. It's not going to resolve the strikes. The fact that in the NHS, where we have disputes, we negotiate minimum safety levels anyway. Uh, so completely and utterly uh, unnecessary. There's obviously the bigger argument that is a, it, it, is, it is a fundamental attack on our on the right of working people to be able to withdraw their labour and take... Uh, strike action. 
we do not accept for a minute uh, that the government is trying to line up with similar standards in Europe, which is another line that's being used. That's complete and utter uh, nonsense. Yeah, some of the countries like France do have these kind of minimum service levels as well, don't they? They do. A number of countries have them. The difference is they're negotiated uh, locally. You negotiate them uh, locally and uh, it's a pick and mix approach. Uh, so there are countries where you do not have to give 14 days notice before you take strike action, as you have to do uh, in the UK. So the government had decided to take a pick and mix approach, but it is simply not going to resolve the issue. And in fact, it could have the opposite effect. It could actually prolong the length uh, of disputes as a result, because it means that things don't come to a fore quickly, things become delayed. It could mean that unions look at action like strike action, short of action, work to rule, that kind of action, which again just prolongs disputes. So actually, it's going to make the situation worse. It's not going to resolve the crisis we're in, and it's going to make the situation worse. Interesting. interesting. Um, you know, Adam said there that, you know, that looking at the polling, the, for the government, the thing they have to do is simply just pay the NHS workers. That's the only way to sort of resolve this kind of stuff. You, you've, you, your Unite tweeted today that saying that there's five days for the government to prevent this huge day of action on, on Monday. You know, what do you want to see between now and then? Do you want to get in a room with Steve Barkley and others? What, what kind of needs to happen to prevent that action from taking place? We will get in a room with Steve Barkley as soon as he is ready. <laughs> uh, as soon as he is ready. But we do also need to be clear we do need to be discussing about the issue that's going to resolve the current dispute. We can't do what's been done before, which is discuss everything but that. So if the government are willing to sit down and discuss with us, we will do it. We're ready at any point that they want to do that. And I emphasise again, we're ready to sit down and compromise. That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right-hand corner of the website. Thanks to my brilliant guests, Teresa Villiers, Adam Drummond and Oni Kassab. Our editor today was Laura Silver. And thanks to you all again for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst, and this has been The Rundown. <laughs>